0: You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to Week 5. Today's teaching is on Exodus 20, 22 through 24, 18. Thanks for joining us. So now that we're used to the desert, today we're going to hunt for hidden treasure. And that treasure is something that our Christian community has buried and underestimated. And together, I hope we can unearth it and see how precious it is. When David and I were newlyweds in Massachusetts, a friend of ours was raking leaves one day. She had a shabby old quilt. She piled the leaves on it and she dragged it over to the main pile and dumped it. And a car driving by pulled over. A woman jumped out dashed over to her, and said, Stop, that's a precious quilt. Turns out it was some rare blue and white pattern. And the woman whipped out her checkbook, wrote a check for $300. This was 40 years ago. She shook out the leaves and and walked away with the quilt. And my friend is, like, speechless holding this check. So... Last week and this week we're focusing on the law and I would love for us to respond to God's law like that woman who saw precious value in the quilt and not like my friend who thought it was dingy and not worth much. So listen to these verses, Psalm 119. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. You hear that? Rejoicing, longing, delight, joy. Does anyone here react like that to God's law? (laughs) I don't quite, but it's growing the more I study. Law is used in the Bible with several meanings. It can be a specific section of the Old Testament, It's the set of commands that God gave to the Israelites, or with the broader meaning, it's the moral code that God wants us to follow. So I want to talk about that broad sense to start off with because the law gets a bad rap in our churches today, and we need to check our attitudes before we study these chapters. Lindsay said last week that the law expresses God's character and values. Jesus described the heart of the law in Matthew 27, 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving fellowship with God and the people around us. What could be better? And God himself tells us how to accomplish that. Have you ever had a friend who started a diet or an exercise plan that she was excited about? Maybe she lost weight or felt great, couldn't stop talking about it, went to great effort and expense to follow the plan? Our creator God gives us instructions for a flourishing life far beyond the wildest, most exaggerated claims of any diet or exercise plan. And what's our response? Nah, Maybe, do I have to? It's more like a burden than an opportunity. One problem with the law is simple human rebellion against being told what to do, right? We all have it. But a huge problem in the church is that we misuse the law. I once read about a man who sued a lawnmower company because he was seriously injured by his lawnmower. He tried to use it as a hedge trimmer. And when he held it up against the hedge, he lost control and he tried to blame the company. But the problem wasn't the lawnmower, wasn't the manufacturer, the problem was his misuse. We call misuse of the law legalism. The Greek New Testament has no word for legalism, but Paul spoke often against legalism, usually describing it as the works of the law. Especially in our part of the country, we tend either to fall into legalism and wrong focus on the law or to react against that by throwing off all restraint. The real problem is not God, not his law, but how we handle it. The most glaring legalism is looking to the law for salvation, believing that good works can save you. Some people think that the law in the Old Testament was given as a means for the Israelites to be saved, but that wasn't true. Salvation has always been by faith. The law was given so that God's people could live in fellowship with him. It also convicts of sin and points us to the gospel, restrains evil, but it's never been a vehicle of salvation. Most of us don't rely on the law for salvation, but we struggle with more subtle distortions. Paul spoke sternly to the Galatians in chapter five, verses four to six. He said, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love, through the spirit, It's not the works themselves that count, but the obedience produced by faith working through love and all of it through the Holy Spirit. Faith produces love, love produces obedience, and the whole sequence is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said something similar at the Last Supper in John 14 and 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Faith produces loving obedience empowered by the Holy Spirit and the result is fullness of joy Any use of the law that's not motivated by faith and love or not carried out by the Holy Spirit tends toward legalism and loss of joy. Without faith and love, without the Holy Spirit, we're headed toward legalism and joylessness. So legalism may look like some of these things. Focusing on superficial behavior rather than relationship to God. Constantly measuring my righteousness and comparing it with others. Covering my sin instead of confessing it. Doing good works to be seen by others. Self-reformation rather than Holy Spirit transformation. Manipulating rules for myself rather than submitting to truth. Do you recognize yourself? (laughs) I think we all fall into this from time to time, don't we? On the other hand, what are some things you would see in actions prompted by the faith, love, obedience sequence? Being constantly amazed by God's grace rather than concerned with my own standing. Joyfully pursuing Godlikeness because He's so precious to me. Delighting to let the Holy Spirit guide me into a closer relationship with God. So, with that, I. Deal as a backdrop, let's look at the commands God gave Moses. God is building a nation in Exodus and it requires three components, people, land, and law. We have the people on the way to the land and now God is giving them a law. So the laws in Exodus and the following books aren't just a moral code, they're a legal basis for governing. That's different from now where God's people are scattered under various governments because we're not a political entity. The Ten Commandments that Lindsay spoke about last week are broad principles applicable everywhere. Today, many of the things we discuss are more specific applications. You notice that, right? You were asked to label these laws according to four categories, worship, life, wife, and stuff. And sometimes the distinctions weren't very clear or one law overlapped two categories. Did you have trouble with that? Yeah. So, I warn you, I am not answering all your questions today because we need to have a a brief time. So I'm just going to have a couple of examples for each category. You can email my husband later with all your questions. (laughs) So the first category is worship. As always, God is both foundation and focus. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. I picked these two because they're both a general principle and specific instructions. You've heard the first command already, God alone is to be worshipped. And don't embellish the worship with your own creations, right? Simple altars. But then 2314 begins a section of instructions for three specific religious festivals. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering. So God reigns supreme, but this worship is intertwined with the rhythms of agricultural life. Okay, this one is hard to understand without background. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Yeah. But you need to know that ancient Near Eastern religions were often highly sexualized. Some had temple prostitutes. Priests might be naked or deliberately exposed by wearing short tunics and being elevated above the people. No undergarments. So in contrast, modesty and purity characterize Israelite worship. So this command overlaps a little with the section we called wife that deals with marriage and sexual behavior. Category two life, human well-being, and relationships. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So killing a human being made in God's image is punishable by death. God also considers the motive, though. If it wasn't intentional, there's leniency. That's the basis for our modern distinction between murder and manslaughter. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, 2116. Kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery or buying them was a capital crime. Do you know how African slaves were acquired in our own American history? Think on that. So if not that way, where did the Israelites get slaves? Most of the slaves mentioned in these laws were more like indentured servants. Because of hopeless debt or pressing need, they sold themselves or sold their children into a period of servitude, but eventual release was expected. It wasn't lifelong. The main exception to this was captives of war, who might be kept as slaves rather than executed. The law also protects vulnerable life. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Sojourner could be immigrant, refugee, traveling businessman, probably from a different ethnic group or religion. No prejudicial mistreatment is allowed. Also widows and orphans lacked normal family protection and they have to be treated well. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Another group of vulnerable powerless people would be the poor. God has compassion for them. God cares about the vulnerable and the weak. Category three, wife. It includes protecting marriage and keeping sexual activity within marriage. There's not much of that in these chapters, did you notice that? But there's, I found a couple of examples. If he designates her for his son, this is in the passage regulating slaves. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. This seems to be a woman who is a slave or indentured servant, possibly even sold for the purpose of marriage. Her marriage has the same status, the same security as any other woman. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife, 2216. Sex should be confined to marriage. A man who seduces a young woman is considered to have chosen her for a wife. He must honor her properly and offer marriage and a bride price. That's a very strong protection for women. So, the final category is stuff or property. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Outright theft, of course, is banned. The thief not only has to make restitution, but to pay more than the original value because he had an evil intent. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. You're responsible for accidental property damage but no extra payment. But you read in chapter 22, the first time your ox behaves dangerously, it's an accident. After that, you're responsible. That you didn't pen it up and you're endangering the community. So again, there's a graduated scale. And this one has huge implications. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. You are your brother's keeper. Taking initiative to care for others and their property is how you love your neighbor well. So that goes well beyond just stuff. And one final law that Lindsay mentioned, right? I had to do this. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay. Some commentators say it's just an offense against propriety to boil a young goat in the milk that its mother would have used to nourish it. Others say that they think it might have been a magic ritual. So like the law, going against, a law against going up the altar steps, you, don't, you need to know the cultural background. And so we're not sure about this. But what general principles do you see What does God value? To name just a few, total allegiance to God and proper worship of him, the value of human life, truth and honesty in all relationships, impartial justice for all, accountability for actions, respectful treatment of everyone regardless of status or race, protection of the vulnerable, communal responsibility for one another, regard for marriage and sexual purity, It's hard for us to understand how striking these things would be in the ancient Near East. We talk about declining morality in our culture, but our Western culture is still saturated with Judeo-Christian values that came from these laws. Imagine these laws being given into a context of child sacrifice, temple prostitutes, bribery and corruption, perversion of justice by the rich and powerful, oppression of the powerless and vulnerable, socially accepted indecency and immorality. What a testimony when a group of people displays different values and lifestyle. That's an opportunity we still have today and it's growing, right? God ends this section of law with amazing promises of protection and flourishing if the Israelites obey him. Whoops. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. I think this is the same angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Remember that? We called that a theophany, an appearance of God. This time he's not specifically called the angel of the Lord but I still call it a theophany because the angel has power to forgive, he must be obeyed and he has God's name in him. Those are all characteristics of God. Another promise of protection is in verse 27. I will send my people before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. Compare that with what Rahab says in Joshua 2 when the spies come to Jericho. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That promise is totally fulfilled. God promises not just protection, but great fruitfulness if they obey. We know, however, that the people are not going to obey, they won't keep their commitment, and they won't always flourish. So in chapter 24, verse two, God ends this long discourse that began in chapter 19 by telling Moses to go down and bring Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders back up with him. It's time to ratify that covenant that God first mentioned in chapter 19. So what's a covenant? A binding agreement between two parties, a commitment to an ongoing relationship with specific obligations. We use the word most often to talk about marriage. It is a serious binding commitment to a lifelong relationship with obligations for both parties. God is not just dictating commands to the Israelites. He is binding himself to them in relationship. His commands come within the embrace of a supportive protective commitment. Do you think of God in the Old Testament as stern and harsh in comparison to the compassion of Jesus in the New Testament? Jesus said that if you had seen him, you had seen the Father. And there's the same compassion in the Old Testament God that you see in Jesus the Messiah. So the sequence of events in chapter 24 is Moses goes down tells the people God's commands. They promise to obey. Moses writes down the book of the covenant and then has young men sacrifice oxen. Remember, there aren't any consecrated priests yet. Moses collects the blood of the offerings and throws half of it against the altar. That signifies God's covenant participation. After Moses reads the book of the covenant to the people, they promise again to obey it. He sprinkles them with the other half of the blood to show their participation in the covenant. Notice Moses' words, the blood of the covenant, in verse 8. We'll come back to that. People aren't usually sprinkled with blood at a sacrifice. But later in Exodus, we'll see that priests are consecrated by having sacrificial blood placed on their ears, thumbs, and big toes. So I take the incident here to be parallel to a priestly consecration of the nation the Israelites as a nation are being consecrated as the kingdom of priests and holy nation that God spoke of in chapter 19. So with the sacrifice performed and the covenant ratified, the 70 elders representing the people can now approach God more closely than ever before. They go partway up the mountain where they see God and eat and drink in his presence, maybe a covenant meal. It seems they didn't actually see God's face because that would be death, but there was a visible, recognizable form. Can you imagine eating a meal in that presence? A deeper level of relationship to God has begun and God's next set of instructions will be to build a tabernacle where he can dwell in the midst of his people. He desires to dwell in the midst of them and help them overcome the obstacles to an intimate relationship. And that desire has never lessened. He will continue to draw us into intimacy until the day comes when we finally see him face to face. So our passage ends with God summoning Moses alone to go further up the mountain. There in the sight of all the people, he's called by God to walk into a cloud with God's glory like a consuming fire at the top. Don't you wonder what the people thought as they watched him disappear? and then waited 40 days for him to come out. Let's go back to that blood of the covenant statement by Moses. What does that remind you of? In Matthew 26, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At the Last Supper, right before his crucifixion, Jesus declared that he was creating a new covenant which would be sealed by the sacrifice of his own blood. What's that covenant? It's not the same terms as the book of the covenant that Moses read, but our covenant does include obligations and it calls for obedience. Jeremiah describes it like this. Whoops, okay. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. As the gospel was extended to the Gentiles, we're included in that covenant. God's moral law is still in force. It's now written on our hearts as well as in scripture. How does God do that? One big distinguishing mark of the new covenant is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all believers. Remember how I said at the beginning that the Holy Spirit empowers our obedience? God's character and values haven't changed. He still wants them displayed to the world through his covenant community. But now we have the gracious empowering of the Holy Spirit within us to help us obey. So if the Holy Spirit is working inside me, why do I still need the law to show me what holiness looks like? Because my human heart is deceptive. My conscience is not a perfect guide. And my attention to the Holy Spirit is sometimes lacking. I still need the written law as a guide. The Spirit does not replace or contradict the word. He empowers us to understand it and obey it. Some people believe that our freedom in Christ means total freedom from law. That's not true. Grace frees us from earning our relationship to God, but not from living in obedience. The freedom, our biggest freedoms now, our freedom from sin, from condemnation that separated us from God, we're justified. Freedom from the power of sin in our lives, we can be sanctified. And with those freedoms, being set free from those things, we can glorify God and enjoy him by living in covenant community, displaying his glory to the world. Look again at the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Ah, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So my prayer for all of us is that our faith will produce that love that leads to obedience and that we will all be full of joy, the joy of the Lord and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's close in prayer. Lord thank you that you have chosen to covenant with us not just dictate laws to us but covenant with us and walk with us protect us support us enable us I pray that we would look again at your law and see it for the precious treasure that it is for the joy there is in following your way in knowing you and being close to you Thank you that you have given us so much of yourself in your word and in your spirit and in your son that we can know you and follow you. And I just pray that you will even more deeply engrave these words on our hearts so that we could follow you and display your glory to the nations, to the world around us that needs to hear you, know you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.